All right, so this morning we're going to talk about money. I think the title is What the Bible Says About Money or something like that. Um, so if you thought this was something else, this is your chance. <laughs> money, wealth, and riches is mentioned in the Bible about 300 times. And we're going to look at all of those, by the way. No, we're not. It's going to seem like it, maybe. The lack of money or poverty, need, and want is mentioned about 200 times. So money is a common theme in the Bible. In all of that, it's really important to understand that money is amoral. What do I mean by that? It has no moral quality in and of itself. It sits in your wallet or at the bank or in your pocket, and it is by itself, as it sits there, neither good nor bad. But what is also very clear from the Bible is that your interaction with money is a measure of what you believe about who God is. It reveals your character, and it reveals your faith. Money is used throughout the Bible as a measure of character and a means to expose faithfulness and integrity. It's also the means to expose error, sin, and actually the judgment of God. In Isaiah 5, verse 8, It says, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, Surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. That passage is a passage, a series of woes, a judgment on a nation, and the judgment on the nation in this case has to do with financial excesses, greed on an individual and a national level, materialism, resulting inflation, and the end of all of that, which is desolate houses. All of the wealth of the unrighteous, it says later on in Isaiah 5, ends up in the hands of the people that they took advantage of, the people that they despise. In verse 17 of Isaiah 5, it says, Then the lambs will graze as in their pasture, and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. What does that mean? The waste places means a place that has been laid waste, destroyed. That is the end of greed and financial, economic, and monetary excesses. Does it sound like the current news? You know, throughout Christ's ministry, he identified false teachers. Throughout the Bible, false teachers, including in 1 Peter 5, when it talks to pastors and elders and says your motivation is not for sordid gain, throughout the Bible, false religious leaders are identified and they give themselves away because of their use of money, their focus on money. In Jude, verse 11, talking about, again, the woes against the apostate teachers, the false teachers, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. If you don't know your Bible history, that sentence might not make a lot of sense. I had to go read the history. And it's really interesting. The story of Balaam is recorded in Numbers 22 to 25. You can read that later. 
He was a false prophet who was up for sale by the highest bidder. He was fascinated with money. He loved money. He preferred wealth and popularity. And like Korah, Balaam faced divine judgment. So money is not good or bad, but it exposes a lot of things. Money simply exposes the good, the bad, and sometimes the ugly in you and I. So perhaps it's best to start with the, thir- the classic 30,000-foot level view. Very simple. Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. Five words. Understanding these five words will change your entire view of money and people with money and people without money. It says this, the Lord makes poor and rich. There is only one qualification for being rich. That verse tells us what it is. God made it happen. That pretty much blows away the overwhelming conventional wisdom that someone with tremendous wealth is special, they're smarter, or morally superior. That is not what being wealthy means. That is not the qualification for being wealthy. It blows away the conventional wisdom that poor people are inherently weak, immoral, lazy, and inferior. Both of these views cut out the providence of God. The Lord makes rich and poor. For those of you that don't know me, I am an accountant in my spare time. I have been doing this work for about 45 years. I've been dealing with people and their money in various forms for most or all of those 45 years. And I figured out a long time ago that the amount of money, the amount of wealth that somebody has is a terrible predictor of how smart, gifted, spiritual, or moral somebody is. Some of the least talented, meanest, arrogant people I have ever met are super rich. And some are poor. Some of the kindest, most talented, and humble people I've ever known are poor. Some of the hardest working people I've ever met are poor. And some are wealthy. Why? Because according to his own purposes and plans, God makes rich and God makes poor. So I want to drill down now to what the Bible says about money. Having taken that 30,000-foot level, that's the backdrop to everything I'm going to say. Because that's the backdrop in Scripture. I want to look at what the Bible has to say about money in three different ways. We're going to look at what the Bible says about money as a reflection of your character. Money as a mirror. I want to look at, second of all, what the Bible says about acquiring money and acquiring wealth. And then finally, I want to look at what the Bible says about how to use money. Okay, that's the three things we're going to look at. Let's just jump right into the first one, money as a mirror. Your view of money, your handling of money, exposes who you really are. I want to show you three passages that drive this home. 
Money is an object with no inherent morality. What you do with it, how you think about it, and how much you think about it is a mirror that reflects back to you if you choose to look what you believe about who God is, your character, and the depth of your faith. So we're going to look at three passages to see money as a mirror. First, if you would, turn to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30 is written by a man named Agur, if I'm saying that right. You'll see in verse 1 it's spelled A-G-U-R. Agur was likely a student of Solomon, and he wrote Proverbs 30, one of my favorite Proverbs. It's especially unique in a lot of ways. It's blunt, and it's practical in ways that I've always appreciated. For example, if you look at verse 2 of Proverbs 30, it says, Surely I am more stupid than any man. For some reason, on a visceral level, I identify with that verse. You can all wonder why. But in verses 7 and 9, he prays a very profound and simple prayer that is incredibly helpful and practical when considering your personal finances. And I wonder if you would agree with this prayer. I wonder if you would pray this prayer. Verse 7. Two things I asked of you, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of God. Simple, right? Profound, not hard to understand. He's comparing and contrasting honesty versus deception. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. This is the core of what money exposes in your character. Perhaps you haven't thought about that before. Honesty and deception. He goes on to explain that. But it also reflects a humility. God is in control. Give me the food that is my portion. That reflects an understanding that whatever I have, who gave it to me? God did. And whatever he gives me, that is my portion. It's exactly what I need. So Agur understands that money is a barometer of spiritual condition. As you read Proverbs 30, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? He recognizes the human tendency to allow wealth to feed the sins of arrogance and self-sufficiency. That's self-deception. That's dishonesty. That's why he leads in with the issue of honesty versus deception. And then he also recognizes the human tendency to allow poverty to motivate the sin of theft and self-deception again. Dishonesty. And what is that dishonesty? That I would profane the name of God. That is dishonest. That is a reflection of a dishonest heart to profane the name of my God who provides me everything. Agur is praying to be content. Give me just enough, but not too much. 
A second passage to give us more perspective on contentment is Hebrews 13, verse 5. If you want to turn to Hebrews 13, you can. We're going to be there briefly. Hebrews 13, 5 is in the context of six verses which lay out in the most concise, magnificent way the ethics, the Christian ethics of practical living. Deals with love for others, marriage, moral purity, and then verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being what? Content with what you have. See, in Hebrews 13.5, contentment is, is the equivalent of being free from the love of money. There's a contrast. The love of money and contentment, they do not go together. You will not be content if you love money. If you love money, you will not be content. In fact, mature spiritual leadership is marked by not being a lover of money, as it says in 1 Timothy 3.3, the qualifications of an elder. That's not unique to elders and pastors. That is a call to every believer, that we are to be free from the love of money. So it's true of leadership in the church. And dads, it's true of your leadership in the home. Or your future leadership in the home if you're single. You need to lead your home free from the love of money, a contentment. Be content with what you have. A third passage to look at for money as a mirror is Philippians chapter 4. If you're in Hebrews, turn back a couple of books to Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Philippians 4, verse 11 where it makes clear that contentment is learned. It comes from experience. It comes from maturity. Why are you having financial difficulty in your life? Maybe that's answered in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be what? Content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Contentment is learned. Life will present lots of circumstances to train you and to test your level of contentment. And all the older people said, (laughs) it's our experience, isn't it? Have you had money and then lost it all? You hopefully have applied the truth of this verse. Some of you will be there in life, this life. How about being dirt poor and having suddenly a lot of money? Some of you think, wow, that sounds great. How do you live in humble means? Can you live in prosperity? Whether you live in humble means or prosperity, if those circumstances change, the point of Philippians 4 is it's the same life, same rules. Same realities, same obligations. Whether you have a lot of money in the bank or you don't, doesn't change any of that. Nothing changes. You're content under all circumstances. There's a great illustration of this in the Bible. If you want to turn to Job chapter 1. 
Job chapter 1, there's an incredible illustration of Philippians 4, 11 and 12. And Job, if you know the story, well, if you don't know the story, you're going to hear it very quickly here in summary form. Verse 1, who was Job? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That's who he was. Now, verse 2 and 3 is going to tell us what he had. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was greatest of all men of the east. Now, we don't measure wealth today by the number of animals and children we have. But in an agrarian culture and society, that is how wealth is measured. And he was extraordinarily wealthy. And he was a man of great character. So, verse 1 is who Job is. Verse 2 and 3 is everything he had, and it's everything he lost. Because described in verses 4 through 19 is how he lost all of that. And that's a different sermon. But I want to see what was Job like after. Philippians 4.11, living with much, living with little. What was Job like when he went from much to little? Verse 22 of Job 1. Well, let's look at verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and complained. Is that what it says? He fell to the ground and filed for government assistance. (laughs) He worshiped. Same guy. Same guy. What did he say? Naked I've come from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the same guy described in verse 1, that he was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Because it goes on to say in verse 22, through all this Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. You see, there's a difference between blaming God and crediting God. Job understood the Lord makes rich and the Lord makes what? Poor. The Lord made Job rich. The Lord made Job poor. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is giving credit and worship to the Lord for who he is and what he's done. You see, money is a mirror. We've seen in Proverbs 30, Hebrews 13, 5, and Philippians 4, 11 and 12, or 11 through 13, profound passages describing how your view of money is a mirror into your view of who God is, your faith in God, and your character. So let's move to the second issue we want to deal with this morning. That's money as a mirror. Now we're going to look at what the Bible says about pursuing or desiring wealth. We're going to take a few minutes to hear the caution from Scripture for those who in their heart are motivated to be wealthy. Or to get more money. The priority of their life is to develop a large net worth. 
That's accountant speak for wealth. Sorry, I just slipped into my accounting role there. Net worth. More assets than liabilities. The more assets, the better. They're consumed with it. Those who buy into the materialism that's elevated in this country, and by the way, every country that has ever existed, it is the human condition for sinful man to pursue wealth. This is for those who think money is going to provide pleasure and solve problems. And some of you are sitting there going, wow, a thousand bucks would solve a lot of problems for me right now. Would it? Let's look at that. First Timothy 6. If you want to turn there, First Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10 is what we're going to look at. First Timothy 6. I'm going to start in verse 8. If we have food and covering with those, we shall be what? There's that word again. Content. Now we're going to look at the contrast between contentment and the consuming chase for money. Verse 9, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. These are packed verses, probably the most misquoted verses in the New Testament, maybe in the Bible when it comes to money. How many of you have heard that the Bible says money is the root of all evil? I've heard entire sermons preached on that. That is not what 1 Timothy 6 says. Let's start with what it doesn't say. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says what? The love of money is the root of all evil. And let me tell you why that's important. That is a very important distinction. Because if you believe money is the root of all evil, then the devil made me do it, right? Money made me do it. It transfers responsibility by reading this the right way. It transfers responsibility from an inanimate object, money, to a person, me. It's the love of money. And it doesn't say it's the root of all evil. It says it's the root of all sorts of evil. You see that? All sorts of evil. Money is a vehicle to exploit, finance, and expose the lust of our eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. The Bible speaks of bribes, usurious interest rates, financial oppression, taking advantage of people, Um, with their money, all of it described in the Bible, all of it evil, none of it unique to Bible times. It goes on every day today. And all of that is born out of a love for money. It goes on to say, or it starts off in verse 9, those who want to get rich, and then there's a series of verbs, and I think just by reviewing these verbs, these action words, in the next two verses you get the point. If you want to get rich, you're going to fall, plunge, wander, and pierced. Be pierced. Does that sound like fun? Saul speaks to the expected course if the desire of your life is to be rich. 
It opens you up to more temptations, ruin and destruction, and wandering away from fidelity to Christ and the truth of the Bible. Money doesn't do any of this. It's the love of money. The longing desire for money does this. It says there that you fall into temptation. You know James 1, 14, defining temptation. Each of you is tempted when you're carried away and enticed by your own lusts. It's the same word for desire, longing. By longing to be rich. You're tempted when you're carried away by that longing. Verse 15, then when the lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And then it goes on in verse 9 to talk about a very interesting thing, a snare. A snare is an ambush, a pit, a trap. And I also came to learn it's a hunting tool. It's a trapping device. It's a noose that an animal walks right into. If you're uncomfortable with that, read Genesis 1. It's a way to kill animals. Now, I'm a city boy. Always have been, probably always will be. And in my married life, most of our married life, we have lived in canyon. Different canyons, but a lot of animals, critters, undesirables, whose goal in life is to destroy my yard. (laughs) The battle is joined. I knew nothing of a snare until I met a young man in our high school group here at Grace Community Church who was also a hunter. Oh, and he married my daughter. (laughs) He taught me what a snare was and how to set a snare. I even learned you can buy snares on Amazon. (laughs) But in light of the use of the word in this passage, I marveled at the concept of a snare. It's so vivid. You see, a snare is not hidden. What you do is you find out what is the path of the animal. And usually there's a burrow or something in the, in the hedge where they're all coming through. It's the highway of the critters that need to go away. It's in the open. You put the snare in the open on that high traffic pattern path. There's no trickery involved at all. You simply set it in the right place and wait for the bad guy the rodent, to do their thing. Now, I can't get in the mind of that animal, but the concept is they come up to that snare, they see the snare, they know it's there, and they decide they're going to go through it anyway. They run right through it. Whatever it is they want, which is the destruction of my yard, is so desirable that they see the snare, they know it's there, and it gets them every time. This is a picture Paul wanted young Timothy and us to see. Everyone here knows that the obsession with money and the pursuit of money at the exclusion of all else does not end well. But so many think they can jump through that snare and it will not harm them. You look at history 
You look at where this country is economically right now, and it is a replay of so many times in history. It's a snare. We all see it. We all know it. And as a country, we're jumping right through it. That's why I started with Isaiah 5. There's historical proof. We see that snare, and we go through it anyway. He goes on to talk about many foolish, in 1 Timothy 6, many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. What are some of the snares, the temptations, the foolish and harmful desires? Well, there's theft, right? Some people desire so much money that they'll steal it. Proverbs 30, already read it to you, references it. You can open a business journal, business magazine, a business publication anytime you want, and somewhere in there I can almost promise you is a story of fraud, of theft. There's greed. That is desiring for what is not yours, for more than you have. Ephesians, or excuse me, Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Is that your experience, just observing the world around you? Those who love money will never be satisfied. They will never conclude, I have enough. Pride. It's deceiving yourself that more money makes you a better person than everyone else around you. Some think money gives them a special spiritual position or security. Maybe not here at Grace Church, but that is rampant in false religion, rampant in this world. And in fact, in Revelation 3, the message to the church in Laodicea in verse 17 of Revelation 3, listen to this. It says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Is that deception or is that deception? Nobody needs nothing. All of us need everything because it's all given to us. It goes on to say, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That is our state. Whether we, have, we need a Savior, whether we have money or we don't have money. But there is tremendous, there is a trap of self-deception There's the snare of discontentment. I can tell you from observation, and there's a lot of Bible verses that we could use to back this up. We've already seen them. Money has never produced contentment. If you think it does, I'm telling you that's the snare. It's right in front of you. Don't jump through it. Solomon sarcastically makes this point in Ecclesiastes 10. Listen to this verse. Sounds like the uh, message of our advertising industry in this country. Verse 19, men prepare a meal for enjoyment, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Is any of that true? None of that's true. No. Is meal for enjoyment? Not really. You might enjoy your meal, but what's the purpose of that meal? Survival. You need to eat. Does wine make life merry? 
No. Might make you think for a few minutes that it is Mary. But it changes nothing, does it? And that third part, money is the answer to everything. Obviously, money is not the answer to everything. And we've seen that. It says, by longing for money, many have wandered away. That means to stretch out, to reach for, grasp, aspire to wealth. And on, and on the other side of that, that longing for money is worrying about money. Now, I know I'm not talking to anybody here that worries about money, right? I think we all do. But the longing for money is a preoccupation for what happens if you don't get that raise, if you don't get that new job, if you cannot find more, more money. And Jesus addresses this directly in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. This recalibrates what you should be worrying about, which is nothing. Matthew 6.25 says, Don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In that verse are the four basic needs. Life, food, water, and clothing. That's the basics of life. And Christ is saying there, don't worry about those. Well, if you don't need to worry about life, food, water, and clothing, is there anything else really you need to worry about? Everything else is icing on the cake. Down in verse 31 of Matthew 6, it says, Don't worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Isn't that a comfort? God knows. He knows what you need. And then verse 33. But seek first, not even your needs, your first concern. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's a great life verse. Matthew six thirty-three. Don't wander away. Don't long for money. Long for the kingdom of God. Long for his righteousness and what you need will be provided. So we've looked at what the Bible says about money as a reflection of your character. We've looked at what the Bible says about acquiring money. Now I want to walk through what the Bible says about using money. We live in a wealthy culture. Some of you feel like you aren't participating in that because you don't feel wealthy. But looking over this group, you're well-fed, good-looking, by the way. And it looks like you have clothing, food and water, and life. We have much more than that. Years ago, I set out to do a comprehensive study about money. Because I'm an accountant, I was being asked a lot to talk about money. And that study was also driven by hearing money experts telling people how to use their money and clients and friends and people at church asking me to react to the latest guidance that was out there for Christians. Some of these books and seminars were by experts who claimed to be Christians and biblical. 
And frankly, all the advice I was hearing people get seems so complicated and burdensome. It almost seemed like Christians need to be finance and economics experts in order to obey the complexity of God's Word. And it just didn't seem right, but I needed to know, is this true? And it turned out in my study that much of the Christian money advice was pretty pharisaical. It was teachers putting burdens on people that were too difficult to bear. Burdens that the Bible didn't impose. For example, it was and is a common Christian teaching out there that debt is wrong. That it's an improper use of money. That debt equals unfaithfulness to God. And here's a statement. I'm going to make it loud and clear. And I know I'm going to talk to some of you afterwards because you're going to want to challenge this. And that's okay. Love to talk to you. None of that is in the Bible. The Bible does not say that debt is wrong. There are lots of books written to tell you that debt is wrong. And it might be for you, by the way. But that's not in the Bible. When it comes to budgeting, I'll say this. Not only is debt not, in the, uh, not a sin, but there is no biblical basis for devotion and preoccupation with money in the Bible. I've seen a lot of budget schemes, and this might surprise you coming from an accountant. I think a lot of people are entirely consumed with their budget. Tracking every single dollar. And by the way, for some of you, maybe you need to do that. But what I'm saying is, that's not in the Bible. That preoccupation and devotion and consumption with money. Be careful. My initial search was to find everything in the, that the Bible said about how we could and choose, should use our money and what we should not use our money for. We live in a culture intent on separating us from our money, don't we? And it's not just our culture. But we also live in the reality of the scarcity of money, requiring a measured planning, and I'm, I would affirm that, planning of how our money will be used. Our money, the money that we have, is a stewardship from him who gives us the portion that we need. So how are we to use our money? The answer to that search was amazingly simple and clear. What the Bible says and doesn't say about how to use money is very revealing and helpful. And I want to pass that on to you this morning. The Bible talks about five ways that you should use your money. Number one, you should provide for yourself and your family. I'm going to give them all to you up front, and then we're going to talk about them. Provide for yourself and your family. Second, you should be saving for the future. Third, you need to pay what you owe. That's debt and obligations, and we'll talk about that. Fourth, this will make me really popular, pay your taxes. Five, give it away. And I'll give you the bottom line before we get there. If you are using your money to provide for yourself and your family, you're saving for the future, you're paying what you owe, you're paying your taxes, and you're giving it away and you have money left over, guess what? Do whatever you want with it. 
So let's work through these. Providing for ourselves, for myself and my family. This is the most basic expectation of how you use your money. This is closely linked with work. Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes clear that man and woman were created to work. And before the fall, that work was pure pleasure. It was a blessing from God. It still is, by the way. And it was in and of itself a reward. Food, clothing, shelter were all provided. Starting in Genesis 3, sin enters the world. You have the curse um, based on that sin, and work was forever from then connected to what? Eating. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 12, kind of lays out in the New Testament a summary of that change that happened in Genesis 3. And you all have heard this before. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to what? Eat. Okay? Now, obviously, some cannot work. And they're dependent on the kindness and provision of others. We live in a country that provides for those who cannot work. We also live in a country right now that provides for those who will not work. The burden for you and I as believers is to, if physically possible, work to provide financially for myself and my family. 1 Timothy chapter 5 deals with supporting widows. I'm not going to go through all of that. But verse 8, after that discussion of family obligations, it says this, Anyone who does not provide for his own, especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Pretty clear? We are to use our money. We are to work for money to provide for ourselves and our family. Proverbs 12:11 says he who works his land will have abundant food but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. There is a connection between work and food. Work and providing for your family. Proverbs 21:25 the sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. There is a connection between work and food. We are to provide for ourselves and our family, and we're to work hard to do that. And then you trust the Lord to honor that work. Second use of money, saving for the future. And this, gets, this is now a little more difficult. I don't think the first one's hard to understand. I think we all get that. Second one is where we run into a little bit of trouble. It's a difficult area for some, because if I save, can you hear me in the back? No? I guess I need a, I guess I can't, oh, there we go. Thank you. If I save money for the future, am I saying that I don't trust the Lord? Or saying it another way, if I trust the Lord to provide everything, like we've seen in other places in the Bible... Why should I save? We already saw the providence of God 
in our finances and other passages. And now I'm going to walk through passages indicating that wise living involves preparing for the future. The implication is that God will provide, but you and I must be wise and live according to God's design and God's wisdom. You're familiar with Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. Why is she wise? Because without chief officer or ruler, in other words, nobody telling that ant what to do, by nature that ant prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. You see, setting aside for the future is wise. We live in a culture that's very separated from the cycle of food growth. In the days of Solomon, people understood that there was a season of harvest and then there was a season of planting. And if you ate all your food at harvest, you would not have food during the season when you planted. Right? We're a little bit removed, but that principle still applies. This is a father teaching his sons practical wise wisdom for living. Setting aside for the future means that you will meet your obligations in the event of an unexpected event. Illness, loss of a job, lockdowns, remember those? In Proverbs 30, one of my favorite Proverbs again, Agar says this, the ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. He's drawing a distinction between the smart people and the strong people. And in the race between smart and strong, it almost always goes to who? The smart, the wise. Proverbs 21.20, I love this. Listen to this proverb. There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. In other words, there's inventory. There's food in the pantry. And is kind of what it's saying here. There's savings. The next sentence is, a foolish man swallows it up. What is the point? A foolish man consumes, he lives off of every dollar he gets with no thought to the future. A wise person sets aside for the future. So we're to provide for ourselves and our family, and we are to save for the future. The third area, pay what you owe. Pay what you owe. And as we'll see, this use of money is to pay both what we have borrowed, that's debt, and what we have promised, that's obligation. First, we need to consider debt. Debt is a a contract to use somebody else's money now with the promise to pay it back When? In the future. The Bible doesn't say debt is bad. I've already said that. You'll have to show me if you think the Bible says that. I've done this a few times. Nobody's been able to do that. Debt is amoral as money is amoral. The morality in debt is how you obtain it. Maybe how much of it you obtain how you use that money, and whether you pay it back. This issue exposes things like integrity, honor, diligence, 
wisdom, and foolishness. Earlier in Proverbs 6, a father training his sons in the use of money says this, My son, if you become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. If you have been snared, there's that word again, if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with words of your mouth, let me stop there and define what's going on here. Have you ever heard of co-signing? It's basically what he's teaching his sons. Co-signing on debt is pledging your assets and your income to guarantee somebody else's character, somebody else's obedience. It's foolish. Here's what he tells his sons they do. If they have done this, if they find that they've fallen into this trap, if they've walked through this snare... Verse 3 says, Do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you've come into the hand of your neighbor, go, humble yourself, and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Pretty strong words, isn't it? Don't pledge your assets to back up or vouch for somebody else's character. And let me flip that and make another application. You should not ask other people to do that for you. It's foolish on both counts. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 5. I want to read this to you. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. You see, Christian character demands that you pay back money you have borrowed. It's a contract. You have said, I'm going to take your money now, and I am going to pay it back. You've made a promise. That contract is not just a business contract. It is a promise. It's a vow. It's better that you shouldn't vow than that you should vow and not pay. Don't let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. And the fear of God will drive you to pay it back. It's not just debt, it's obligations. If you tell somebody, I'm going to buy you a car, you have the same obligation under the words of your mouth. A person of integrity swears to their own hurt, it says in Psalm 15. In other words, your accountability is not to somebody else saying, are you living right? It is to your own words. If you make a promise, you keep that promise. A man or a woman of integrity considers financial commitments and promises very carefully in advance, before the commitment is made. Once the commitment is made, the course of events is set. Whether it's a contract to pay the debt back or obligations, which is keeping your promises. Number four, pay your taxes. This is an area that is increasingly a challenge. I admit it. I understand it. I acknowledge that. As our government moves away from its role as a minister of good and towards doing, supporting, and funding outright evil, there is the question of whether we should be paying taxes. 
I have good news. You might view it as bad news. The answer really is pretty simple. We need to be paying our taxes. And we're not the first Christians to be living under these types of questions. Romans 13, verses 5 through 7 says it's necessary to be in subjection to the government. He's talking about the government there. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. I don't think there's any wiggle room there. It's pretty clear. We render the money to God. The money that the government takes, that's, that's theirs. That's God's money. Your allegiance, your, your allegiance, your faith, your trust, and obedience belongs to the Lord. Luke 20, verse 22. When, when Christ was on earth, they tried to trap him. They, the uh, religious leaders asked him, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? When I tell you we aren't the first ones to wrestle with this, they were wrestling with this in, in the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus detected their trickery. That question is a trick question. Jesus detected that. And he said to them, show me a denarius. That's a coin. Money. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Do you have a Ben Franklin picture on your paper money? An Abraham Lincoln? Does anybody carry paper money anymore? I forget whose pictures are on there. Same idea. It's their money. Taxes represents their money. Render to the things that are Caesar's to Caesar and the things that are God's to God. Of anyone, Jesus would have been justified in not paying taxes, wouldn't he? He paid taxes. We need to pay taxes. Number five, the fifth thing we're told to use our money for is to give it away. It's a big category. This means giving it away to the church and to others. 1 Corinthians 16, you've heard this verse before, speaks to obedience on the first day of every week. Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. It is an issue of obedience. The next question that is asked is how much? Is it 10%? You heard that? You have to give 10%. I've been asked all kinds of questions about that. Is that 10% of gross, 10% of net? Since we're supposed to provide for the family, maybe it's you take gross and you have to pay taxes and you have to provide for your family and whatever's left, it's 10% of that, right? Whatever. I have no idea. I don't see that in my Bible. I usually turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'd love for you to turn there to I use this to answer the question, is it 10%, is it more, is it less? I always say yes. Because 2 Corinthians 8 says yes. 
Now, brethren, verse 1, we wish to make known to you the grace of God that has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints." Anybody see 10% in there? What I see is pain, suffering, a lack of money, and even in the spite of that, a begging, it says, with much urging for the privilege, the opportunity to participate in the support of the saints. That kind of blows away the whole question of 10% of what, doesn't it? They gave willingly. They gave according to their conscience, it says. This is not a call to obedience as much as it is a call to join in the joy and the blessing that comes from participating in the church in this way. And this isn't a message to try and balance the budget at Grace Church. I have to tell you, as one of the elders of Grace Church, we are constantly especially in the last two years, completely blown away at the generosity of God's people. There's a number of things we've seen at Grace Church that have been so encouraging about the strength of the body of Christ, and it's not to take pride in any of this. I see it as a reflection of faithful ministry in the pulpit at Grace Church for 50-plus years and the faithfulness of God's people to study, learn, and apply God's Word. One was... When somebody heard that we were meeting here, you started coming by the hundreds and then the thousands, and then we had no choice but to, we're opening the church because it's already open. That was you. The other thing is we went about a year and a half, I think, of not taking a single offering at Grace Church. We've never seen giving like what took place in that era by God's people. It's incredible. I say that as a commendation to you that I see that Grace Church, in general, understands this is the answer to the question of how much do I give. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, the next chapter over, I have to show you this. Verse 6, same subject. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully Each one must do just as he's purposed in his own heart. It's between you and the Lord. Between you and the Lord. Not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's the answer to how you approach giving. You purpose in your heart, not with a grudge, not under compulsion, and cheerfully. That's how much. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 is an Old Testament parallel to 2 Corinthians 9. It's not a promise, but it's a truism. It says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Give it away to the church, but it's not just to the church. It's not just 10% to the church and you're done. You can do whatever else you want. The Bible makes very clear that we're to give our money to others who need it. I'm spending your money this morning, aren't I? 
Acts chapter 2, verse 45, talking about the first day of the new church. The church is born. What was that church like? There's a lot in Acts chapter 2, but verse 45 says, They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That's what Christians do. By the way, that is not a passage in the Bible advocating communism. That is a description of what happened in the new church. That is not a command to the new church. That's what happened. That's what happens here at Grace Church. We could spend the rest of today telling stories, and you, some of you know this because you've been on the receiving end of it. Some of you have been on the giving end of it. That when there is a need at Grace Church, it's amazing to watch the people of Grace Church rally to that need. It goes on all the time here. 1 John 3.17, Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's not talking about giving at church. That is seeing a financial need and meeting it to the extent the Lord has given you the world's goods. Proverbs three twenty-seven and 28, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due and when it is your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back tomorrow and I will give it when you already have it with you. Proverbs eleven twenty-five. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-seven: He who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. You get the picture. So if you're taking care of all five of those areas... That scripture does talk about, then you can do whatever you want with the rest of it. So, the next obvious questions are as we close this time together, I'm going to give you all the questions I didn't answer that I know you might be struggling with. How much do I give away? Okay, I get it. I'm supposed to give to the church and give to others. How much do I budget for that? How much can I spend on entertainment? What does it mean providing for my family? I live in a shoebox on the side of the freeway. Is that providing for my family? I live in a uh, 10,000 square foot house on a mansion on the top of the hill with a 16 car garage. Is that providing for my family? I'm being extreme to illustrate the nature of the question. Each of you have a different perspective on what providing for a family is. Does that mean I need to buy a house? Or can we continue to rent an apartment? How much do I save for the future? This goes into the question of insurance, by the way. Insurance is a form of saving for the future. How much is too much? How much saving is necessary And at what point do I go from saving for the future because it's wise to saving for the future because I don't trust God? Or I'm hedging my bet there. I owe the IRS a lot of money. I don't. I'm I'm, uh, just to be clear. (laughs) I'm repeating a question I've been asked many times. I owe the IRS a lot of money. I only have a hundred bucks this month. 
Do I pay the IRS or do I put money in the plate? These are real-life questions. I, uh, I have just enough money to provide for my family and to make my mortgage payment. I have no additional money. Do I make that mortgage payment or do I take money and save for the future and put money in the plate on Sunday? Don't make any indication, but does any of that ring true as questions that you might have to deal with? That's real life. Guess what? The Bible doesn't talk about how much to allocate to those five things. Sorry. But it does say that that is how you are to spend your money. How you allocate between those five, it's all on you. How you make those decisions is the test. So there's not a right answer that fits for everyone. You see, if it was in the Bible, I could say there's truth. You do what the Bible says. I'm talking about how you allocate your money. If it said that, we could walk out of here with the answer. It doesn't say that for reasons that God knows And so we have to say that there is not a right answer that fits everyone. This is because of varying faith, conscience, maturity. Real quick, here's five things that I would recommend you do if that's your position. And I think that probably describes in some form all of us. We have a scarce resource called money. We now understand how God says we're supposed to use that money. There's not enough money to go around. How do we make those decisions? Number one, get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom, it says in Proverbs 4, 7, is to what? Get wisdom. That's what it says. Go get it. Discipleship, accountability, ask older, wiser people who have been around the block. And by the way, this is not, doesn't say you have to get the wisdom from pastors and elders. There are so many people walking this church who have lived life. They have learned to live with much. They have learned to live with none. They have oodles of wisdom to give you and me. Talk to your parents. Talk to your spouse. I can't tell you how many times I talk to um, a man who's trying to make these decisions. and I, My first question is always, what does your wife say? And probably half the time they say, I have no idea. Go ask your wife. Go ask your husband. Get wisdom. Be a person who asks questions. The second is pray. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. You might have heard of that this morning. There's a prayer for you. Third, Inform your conscience with truth. And I think that's what I wanted to do this morning. You inform your conscience with truth. You study God's word and you understand what it says and what it does not say. And you let the truth of God's word inform your conscience. Please be careful about books that give you money advice, financial counsel, and it's not biblical. It's a trap. A snare. Fourth, be filled with the Spirit. 
Ephesians 5.18 talks about being filled with the Spirit. And if you're filled with the Spirit, and you can uh, read Pastor John's book, Found God's Will, it's short, it's simple, it's clear, and the conclusion is if all these things are in place, meaning you're filled with the Spirit, do what you want. And finally, when you're making these decisions, don't forget Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord from your wealth. It's the goal of everything is to honor the Lord. So we've seen what the Bible says about money as a reflection of your character. We've seen what the Bible says about acquiring money and wealth. And finally, what the Bible says about how to use money. I pray it's been helpful, challenging, and let me close us in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, I pray that I might not have confused it in any way. Holy Spirit, would you speak to each of the hearts here this morning, make application, help, guard, guide, and teach on the issue of money. I pray for each of the people in this room that you would give us wisdom, that we would honor you from our wealth. And Lord, we're grateful to you for all that you have given us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great day.